Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Inauguration Day. It's Wednesday, January 20th. I'm Nyla Boodoo. It's a big day here in Washington, D.C., so here's what we're watching. President Trump's last move on China. But first, Joe Biden swearing in as our 46th president is today's one big I'm Sam Baker. I'm the healthcare editor at Axios. Streets are closed. I would guess maybe half a mile away from the Capitol. You hear a lot more police helicopters. Take a little walk and you'll see, I assume, their National Guard troops walking around in their camo with their big guns. It feels sort of like a symbol of the national failure. This is Elena Treen, Axios congressional reporter. Even though I have a pass that allows me to access the White House and access Capitol Hill, it's tough to get through. This is Margaret Tollev. I'm the managing editor for politics at Axios, and I live in southwest Washington. The city looks and sounds like early on a Sunday morning because nobody is out and everything is closed. Margaret Talib and I don't live too far apart from each other. And over the past week, we've been watching the perimeter around the Capitol get bigger and more soldiers with guns coming to protect it. So I wanted to bring Margaret on this inauguration morning to talk about all of this. Margaret, is there any way to even compare this to past inaugurations that you've covered? I mean, I can compare it to the two that I really remember in my life of covering politics. And one is Barack Obama's historic inauguration, the first black president, he and his wife and their children walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, this ascendant moment for millions of people in this country. Then President Trump's inauguration, an election that shocked the country, shocked the world. Inaugurations in the United States are kind of like coronations. It is like a moment when the president and their family is almost like the royal family if the United States had a royal family. They're very fancy. They're wearing things that are very fancy. Their friends are fancy. This is a different moment, right? And it's not just for health reasons, not just because you can't have crowds and people have to stand apart, but because it's not really a time to celebrate in that kind of way. It sounds like you're really feeling like the gravity of this moment. Have you felt this for any other inauguration that you've covered? Well, no, there's never been a moment like this in my life and certainly not in my coverage of politics. I mean, there was an organized effort to overthrow a legitimate Democratic election. People died in the process. Two of my reporters were barricaded in the House and the Senate chambers, and I didn't know whether they were okay for a long time. It is a moment that if you live inside Washington— has profoundly affected people in the nation's capital and dominated all of the conversation since, but it's also dominated the conversation outside of this town and outside of politics. Look, whatever your politics are, this is a moment of crisis for the country, and nobody really knows exactly how it's going to fit back together. That was what I wanted to ask you, because we think about the fact that inaugurations are one way to mark the passage of time. And I can't help but think of the fact that four years ago, Donald Trump was about to take the oath of office and everything that's transpired in those past four years. And I wonder, as we're thinking over these next four years, what are you watching for in this administration? I think in a way I'm almost looking beyond this administration because to my mind, like the challenge goes beyond political leadership, it is like a civic challenge that I think that's the moment that we're in right now. 
it's a time to be somber and deliberate and to really take note of what's going on. And I think beyond what a politician can do for each American to sit back and say, what can I do? What am I doing in my own life to contribute to this? And what can I do to try to make things better for my family and my neighbors and the people around me? Margaret Tell of Axios' managing editor of politics. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks, Nyla. We'll be back in 15 seconds with a decision behind the U.S.'s declaration of genocide in China. Welcome back to Axios Today. Yesterday, the United States became the first country to officially declare China's actions against its Muslim Uyghur population as genocide. Outgoing Secretary of State Mike Pompeo cited crimes against humanity that include the mass imprisonment of more than one million Uyghurs, torture, manual labor, political indoctrination, and forced sterilizations. This action cements President Trump's legacy on China, but what does it mean for the incoming Biden administration? Bethany Allen Ibrahimian is Axios' China reporter. Bethany, why are Uyghurs such a target of the Chinese government? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all is the land that they live on. So they live in what China calls Xinjiang. It's a northwestern region. And it's really important for the Chinese authorities, both as a source of resources and as a land bridge to Central Asia and the Middle East. Uyghurs themselves have never really enjoyed being part of China. And there has been some low-level unrest there for decades, really. And there seemed to be a decision made among China's top leaders that they wanted to essentially get rid of Uyghurs in everything but DNA. So wipe out their culture and even prevent the youngest generation from even learning the Uyghur language. What evidence is there for the U.S. to call this a genocide since the U.S. is the first country to do so? There's an enormous amount of evidence. There are hundreds of survivor accounts from inside the mass internment camps that China has constructed across Xinjiang. There are leaked government documents. There are satellite images of all of these mass internment camps. So there's really an enormous amount of evidence that has been collected by journalists, by researchers, and by Uyghurs themselves. So why did it take the U.S. so long to reach this decision and make this statement? Well, it it is a difficult process. There's a very high bar for using a term like genocide and crimes against humanity. So this is a policy statement. This is not a statement by a court in The Hague making this as a legal ruling. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be any automatic new sanctions. Joe Biden's nominee for Secretary of State Tony Blinken said yesterday he was inclined to agree with Mike Pompeo on this characterization of a genocide. What are you hearing from inside the incoming Biden administration about where they plan to take this? So the Biden campaign actually did call this a genocide already. I believe that was back in October. So I do expect the Biden administration to explore the possibility of pursuing further measures to uphold it. Bethany Allen Ibrahimian covers China for Axios. Before we go today, there'll be lots of people to view during today's virtual inauguration. Here's one person to watch for, our very first National Youth Poet Laureate, Amanda Gorman. 
Today we gather so that our founders' words do not go diminished, but also so that the work does not go unfinished. For it's not just a declaration of independence, but the everyday declarations of its descendants that make a people equal. That's her reading her poem, Believer's Hymn for the Republic, at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences last year. Every day we write the future. Together we sign it. Together we declare it. We share it. For this truth marches on inside each of us. Like Joe Biden, Amanda overcame a childhood speech impediment. Today she takes the stage alongside Biden to read another original poem, The Hill We Climb. That does it for us today. If you want more news before tomorrow, tune into our afternoon podcast, Axios Recap. You can always reach your team at podcasts at axios.com or find me on Twitter at Nyla Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.